Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. I am excited and honored to be welcoming Stephen G. Post back to the podcast. Stephen is a professor of preventative medicine and the director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassion and Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. He is recognized internationally for his work on the unselfish and compassionate love at the interface of science, ethics, religious thought, and behavioral medicine. In today's conversation, Stephen and I discuss his new book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. In this book, Stephen offers new perspectives on the worth and dignity of people with Alzheimer's and how we approach a deeply forgetful loved one to notice and affirm their continuing self-identity. Listeners, if you have not already done so, I highly recommend checking out Stephen's first episode, where we discuss the power of human connectedness, his blue angel dream, and the importance of unlimited love. Stephen, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And for those listeners who have not listened to your first episode, you are a researcher, author, just an amazing human being overall. I'm always excited to speak with you, but we're talking today about your latest book, Dignity, for Deeply Forgetful People, and it really focuses on how caregivers can meet the challenges of Alzheimer's. Why did you feel the need right now to release this book? That's a great question. I've been working with what I call deeply forgetful people since about 1988, when I moved from New York to Cleveland, Ohio, to join the faculty at Case Western Medical School, I was recruited by a wonderful neurologist named Joseph Michael Foley, very influential in my life. And he wanted to start a national program on the care of people with dementia. Uh, So I've been at this a long time. I've traveled to every state, to every Alzheimer's chapter across Canada, uh, to India and Japan and all across Europe, and have written a lot of things in the medical journals on this topic, some of them scientific, a lot of them ethical, and then a lot of them just about the spirit of care for people who are as I like to call them, deeply forgetful. And so finally, I, I mean, I'd re- I released a book in 2000, um, which uh, was very well received. Uh, and I decided uh, that I wanted to, uh, to do something that was a kind of culminating statement, although you never know. <laughs> but, uh, but that's what this is. It's, it's, the, it's the best I can give. And it's written for the society to overcome its biases, but also for caregivers who want a lot of practical advice. So you use the phrase dignity of deeply forgetful people. How did you come up with that phrase? Because I feel like most of us usually will say, oh, 
they have early onset Alzheimer's or dementia, but you phrase it in such a compassionate way. Thanks. Yeah, that title is uh, really the point of the book in so many in so many respects. Um, you know, dementia is a purely negative term, Mallory. It's a decline from a former mental state, usually precipitous. And it's a term that gets used in very unkind, derisive ways. We call someone demented if we want to just dismiss what they're saying. And I struggle with that. It also gives rise to a very nasty language that you sometimes hear in clinical settings. Uh, oh, she's gone. She's a husk. She's empty. She's a shell. She's dead. Um, and I find that offensive. So it's not appropriate just to think of these people as them versus us, as so different, the demented and the non-demented. Um, it's really about an inclusivity. It's about a spectrum. And we all have, if we think about it, we all have moments when we forget names, when we forget where we parked we, our car, where we even might forget if we have a car that's parked, which is a little more, more serious. Um, so we all know what the frustrations of deep forgetfulness are. And at different times in our lives, um, you know, when we're born, we don't have memories uh, for quite a while. Uh, when we have various illnesses, infections, and so forth, we can lose our memory. Um, so it's not a completely alien experience. And, and just to say one thing, dementia is a syndrome. It's a cluster of symptoms that's caused by a lot of different diseases. Alzheimer's happens to be causing about 60% of dementia today. But you go back 100 years, it was neurosyphilis because they didn't have antibiotics and people weren't living so long. And so that was the main cause of, uh, of dementia. Now we have Alzheimer's, we have chronic traumatic encephalitis, you know, the concussion stuff. Uh, we have Parkinson's and all these different conditions that give rise to dementia. So real quick for our listeners who maybe don't know the difference, would you mind explaining uh, the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Yes, that's a very important question. So Alzheimer's is a particular disease. Dementia is a spectrum of symptoms that can be caused by a whole lot of different diseases. So that's the sort of scientific technical use of the language. Uh, a person can have dementia um, and it can be due to so many different things. Uh, they may have been playing too much ice hockey once upon a time and gotten their head knocked into the into the sideboards. They may have gotten knocked out playing a linebacker for their college team. Um, they may have Parkinson's disease. They may have uh, many, many different conditions. They may have vascular dementia, which means they've had small stroke events in the white matter of the brain, which eventually collect and, and, and impair their, their, their memory uh, and their capacity for rational discourse. Uh, but, but again, so dementia is a, is a cluster, a, a collection of symptoms that has many, many different causes. And Alzheimer's is just one cause, 
but it happens to be the major cause at this point in time because uh, you know people are living to be older, and um, if you look at the um, the so-called epidemiology, about you know two percent of people who are sixty have probable Alzheimer's. And then it doubles every five years. So when the time comes to hit 80 or 85, you're probably talking about, you know, 14 to 18% of people. And that's a lot of people. And from my understanding, and I could be completely wrong, there's nothing you can do to prevent it. Like if you have the gene or the makeup in your genetic framework, at some point, right, it will happen. You might be able to work on your brain elasticity and continue learning, but at some point it catches up to you, correct? Or am I wrong well, that's, with that? That's a very good statement. You know, that. so here's the deal. Um, can you prevent the onset of Alzheimer's? 10 years ago, uh, everybody said no. Um, last night I was actually doing a presentation on the prevention of Alzheimer's disease for a major national organization. Um, people believe now that, for example, stress contributes. Of course, genetics can contribute too, but stress contributes. And uh, in fact, uh, just like when you're chronically stressed out and you have all those stress hormones in your system, they will turn metabolites into fatty acids. So people get vascular conditions. It will slow wound healing by about 10 to 15%. And it will cause atrophy or it will impair a part of the brain that's essential for memory, the hippocampus. And, and therefore, um, a lot of really interesting literature is coming out on mindfulness, meditation, and such things. Very, very good studies in, in A-level journals pointing out that that may be preventive. Also, diet. Uh, seems to be important. And so uh, I won't put an advertisement out for the Mediterranean diet, but it does seem as though um, the Mediterranean diet makes um, a difference over time because they've compared ethnic groups in New York. And that seems to be one significant factor. Also, pro-social behavior, being socially engaged seems to be helpful. You know, using your mind in, in new creative ways. And so if you want my, my advice, um, walk, exercise. So a lot of stuff in the news now, and it's right. Um, get some exercise because it, it improves your vascular flow. In a lot of ways, there's no such thing as a pure diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, oddly enough. It's usually now we talk about a mixed diagnosis. So it could be vascular, it could be uh, encephalitis, it, it could be Alzheimer's. It may be primarily Alzheimer's, but, but, but just good, normal, healthy aging is going to make a difference. And so that's been definitively demonstrated. So, so um, you know, get out and do some walking uh, in nature, possibly, because you'll be inspired and you'll be de-stressed because of the spirit of the trees or whatever. You know. I say this on quite a bit of the episodes. My new favorite thing is walking. I'm a big audible I listen to other podcasts. Sometimes I'll put music on, but I use it as a way for me to grow my brain. So I'll walk about, I try to walk 45 minutes or three miles a day. 
And I get through a ton of books that otherwise I would be sitting. I sit all day at a desk working anyway, but being able to walk and listen and I'm thinking and I'm doing a lot of uh, self-development books. I, it's a phenomenal hobby and it costs you nothing to walk. It's so important. And vascular health really makes a difference. Uh, it's also, you know, it's, it's a, as you were just saying, it's a great de-stressor because we're sitting at these desks, we're locked into our visual panoramas, you know, and we're like almost chained. And so I feel that way anyway. So I do um, too. Yeah. So the best thing you can do is watch your diet, you know, lots of vegetables and fruits and, and don't, uh, don't overdo the, the, uh, the carbs, uh, don't, don't overdo the red meats and things. And, um, um, you know, plenty of leafy vegetables that grow above the ground. Uh, that's all good. Uh, meditate or do mindful, uh, techniques and don't, uh, get stressed out and react to everything around you. You have to develop a spirituality of kindness and self-care. Um, then you can walk with friends to a Greek restaurant. Uh, and then uh, a little mirth helps. Uh, so then on the way home, um, you know, uh, stop by the library and, you know, do a little extra reading or maybe, have a game of checkers with your friends, listen to some good relaxing music. You know, this sounds uh, a little bit fanciful, but it's actually, you know, looking pretty good because the National Institute of Health put out a statement 10 years ago in 2010, which I include in the book. And they said, look, there is no medicine that we have now that can prevent this illness. There is no magic bullet out there. But it's all the other things, you know, uh, that, that seem to make a difference. And that's what this book is, is, is about in part. Preparing for this interview, I watched a few movies. I read a lot, listened to some of your talks. But when people get that diagnosis, they feel like their life is over. And it's not. Things change. You know, every person's different. How quickly the onset is. When will you really start to see it? But for those listeners who maybe know someone close to them or they themselves might have received this diagnosis, what would you tell them? How would you shape their thinking? Because I think that's really important. I would say that dementia is a spectrum and we all have our moments. There are those uh, who have very extreme dementia, but they are still there. I think the most important thing to realize is a chapter in my book, is grandma still there? Question mark. Definitely. Um, and so nowadays, you know, we're studying actually through the National Institutes of Health grants, um, paradoxical lucidity, that people who look like they're long gone, they haven't had a conversation in months, uh, maybe their heads are down, uh, and they're drooping on their chest, um, but they will have moments of surprising lucidity. They will come into themselves. There was a guy I knew who uh, would come into a, uh, an art class uh, for other people with dementia, and his stuff just looked completely like scribble, but there was always a little line down the middle of the page. And I would ask him in the morning, 
well, what's that line? And he couldn't respond at all. But then one morning, surprisingly, he said, it's a map for my daughter to get to my house. And these things are common, almost every, in fact, in fact I'll tell you without exception, every caregiver I've known will talk about these kinds of events. So I call hope with respect to dementia and Alzheimer's being open to surprises. I, I, I went to a nursing home in, in a small town in northeastern Ohio. I spent a lot of time in Ohio. Um, Chardon, Ohio is called Heather Hill. And there was a guy there named Jim. And Dr. Foley, Joe Foley, and I went to his room and we saw his little biographical sketch on the wall. We asked the nurse to point him out to us. So we went into the unit and um, I took Jim over to a table and I asked Jim, how are your sons? He couldn't respond. Um, then he had a white twig in his hand, which he put in my hands. And when he did that, he smiled this effusive smile and I couldn't get over it. I thought, what's he trying to convey to me? What's he saying? What's it? What's What's the message behind this action, which otherwise looks completely meaningless? And uh, so I gave the twig back to him. And when he gave it to me, by the way, if joy was electric, the place would have been on fire. And I said, uh, I said to the nurse, so what's the story with Jim and his twig? And she said, well, he grew up on a farm in, um, in Ohio, you know, nearby. And he loved his father very much. And his father gave him a chore every morning, which was to bring kindling in for the fireplace. So like a lot of people with dementia, he had gone back in time to that safe point where he felt tender, loving care. And that symbol of the twig was really important. He knew that somehow his journey, his identity was wrapped up in that, in that symbol. And, and, and there's a lot you can do with individuals. You know, they will, have, if you give them a rosary bead, they're Catholic, they'll pray the rosary right to the end. Um, they will chime in with deeply learned hymns. Uh, uh, they will um, uh, recognize uh, images and prayers and so forth. So that's why pastoral care has a role because it's largely a symbolic exercise. But I'm a big believer that grandma's always there. Even if you're tempted to think that she's gone, uh, just hang around. You have to be a noticer. I like that word. You have to be a noticer. Larry Dossie's word. You have to notice the little, the little hints of continuing identity and then build on them. And you feel as a caregiver that, hey, you know, I'm not wasting my time on a shell or a husk, but actually, you know, this is very meaningful. And it, it's, it's the epitome of, of humanity at its best. So a few things came to my mind when you were talking about that story. And then also just, I don't like that idea of like a shell or a husk because it's still a person. And what came to mind is I watched both my parents day in and day out, take care of their parents, my grandparents. Um, my grandparents did not have Alzheimer's. They had their own health issues, but still my parents were caretakers, no less. And I remember having this conversation with my dad and he's like, I will be there every day, whatever they, he needs. Like, because when we're so little, when we're babies, we can't take care of ourselves. Yeah, we're a person, but we're mute. We don't talk. We can't really do much. We still need that caretaker. 
But as we get older, the roles reverse. So the parents have to be the ones that at some point have to get taken care of by the children. So it's just a swapping of roles. But I think it's interesting that when you get older, you're looked at as like a shell or a husk. But when you're a baby, it's like, oh, you have all this potential, but you're both mute. You both are not necessarily contributing a lot. You're both there. You both need to get taken care of. But we look at those stages of life so different and we treat them so differently. Yeah. And of course, an infant may have some emotional memory that's been studied, but they don't remember images. They don't remember events. Not That doesn't develop until you become a toddler, pretty much. And, and, and yet, yeah, absolutely, we cherish the infant because we see so much uh, potential. potential. Yeah, but people who are deeply forgetful, you know, if, if you go to a, uh, I go, I'm an Episcopalian, if I go to an Episcopal church service and some baby in the back row starts crying, we kind of, we're okay, you know, no one gets upset about it. But if uh, some older adult uh, starts uh, crying out, uh, in their condition of dementia, uh, we just think it's completely unacceptable, and we want them out the door. Um, and so that's a real, a real, a real issue. I think part of the book, the intent of the book, is to change social attitudes, and hence, you know, deeply forgetful people, is to try to emphasize continuities instead of discontinuities with this population. One thing I was not aware of that I learned in your book was that Ronald Reagan had Alzheimer's. He was a little bit before my time, just a kind of level set. Not that I was ignorant. I was four when he passed away. But um, why was his announcement regarding his Alzheimer's diagnosis such a big deal? And how did it help lift the veil of secrecy, as you put it? Well, Ronald Reagan... um was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. It's always a probable uh, diagnosis. You don't know exactly. Um, but uh, as soon as he finished his second term and uh, his wife, Nancy, took very, very good care of him and he lived for quite a while, uh, I think 14 or 15 years, um, largely in, in uh, uh, California. But what's interesting about Ronald Reagan is that um, he wrote this beautiful, beautiful letter to the American people. Whatever anyone's politics are, Ronald Reagan loved America and he loved Americans. I will say reading his letter that you have in the book made me, and we don't have to get into politics, but made me wish that we, our politicians, thought of the country the way that Reagan wrote that letter. Like, I feel like that image of America not present at the moment. I hope we no. get back there, but we're not there. And I read that letter and I took us a, a few seconds after reading that being like, wow, like, wow, he really wanted the best. And that's why he was coming and telling everyone about it so that we as a society could be more empathetic towards yes. individuals. And I was like, we don't get that anymore. No, no. And, and, you know, Ronald Reagan was always about hope. And at the end of that letter, um, you know, he talks a lot about hope and, and, you know, he did Western movies. You know, I may be heading down that, that last trail, but there is still hope and there's hope for America. And, and he was able to entrust himself 
to people who loved him. And that makes a big difference too, because now um, probably 20 to 25% of people with Alzheimer's don't have families. They're actually called, and I'm not sure I totally agree with the language, um, but they're called live-alones. And in the book, I talk about a San Francisco street clown who was a live-alone. You know, he would be performing on the library steps and he had a little apartment and he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and um, he didn't have anybody he could really trust. Uh, so he didn't want to put himself through the possibilities of being overtreated with a tube in every orifice, natural and unnatural. He wanted a relatively natural dying, but he just didn't have confidence that that could occur unless he had a really loyal chaperone to watch over his, his circumstances. He didn't have that. So he actually uh, bought a plane ticket and he went to Switzerland to a place called Dignitas and, um, uh, and they, and they, uh, um, they euthanized him. Uh, and and that, that, that does occur there. It occurs in Canada now, in Quebec. Um, it's occurred in the Netherlands for quite a while. It's not commonplace. Uh, most of these, uh, uh, you know, physician-assisted suicide rules are for people who are still lucid of mind and you have two doctors who can independently predict that they'll be dead in six months. But... Um, you wonder, does that discriminate against this population? I mean, in Oregon, where they have physician-assisted suicide, uh, of course, people with pancreatic cancer and so forth are most typically availing themselves of it, but people with ALS as well, because you know they can say, I don't wanna be on this ventilator anymore. Uh, and, and, and when they're extubated, they will die. So, so there's a lot of, uh, I once did a study of Alzheimer's caregivers, and I found that about a third of them were totally opposed to assisted suicide and euthanasia. About a third of them were actually okay with it, and about a third of them were, you know, not sure. And the medical students here, they, they want to talk about that. You know, I can't give a lecture on Alzheimer's and not, not talk about this topic Well, it's interesting you bring up assisted suicides because we're people. We all, we don't want to feel pain. We're also, I think, afraid of the unknown. But when I think about it, I think about when I was younger and or with animals, we hate watching animals in pain or suffering. And part of being a good owner is when you have to make that call. It's, it's not fair to the animal. Do the humane thing. But when it comes to people and they are being tube fed or on a ventilator or anything, it's we keep them going because they're humans, but is that the humane thing to do? Is that the right thing to do? It's also not my place to tell you what I think you should do. If you and your doctors and you, your family, ultimately you come to peace saying, like, I have this disease. I know how it's going to end. I don't want to go out like that. I want to own my power and make that choice. Okay. And if, if your doctors are on board, it doesn't affect me at the end of the day. It really affects your loved ones. You don't want to walk. I wouldn't want my loved ones to have to watch me on a ventilator. I know that much. Well, you know, so definitely um, everybody who works in this field recommends hospice care at the end stage. No ventilators, 
no feeding pigs. If you have an underlying chronic condition like diabetes or a cardiac problem or even um, cancer or whatever it might be, um, you do not have to continue treatment for those underlying conditions. And that means basically uh, let people go according to nature. Um, there's nothing that can benefit them from these technologies. And oftentimes the technologies are very uncomfortable. Um, uh, so I, I feel this very strongly. And, and that's not controversial, but what's controversial is deciding that, you know, um, I'm looking forward to the next X years and I'm still competent. And I know there's going to be a sort of appealing away of some of my capacities. And I think that's undignified. And therefore I want to go off to Dignitas or to Quebec or whatever. And I'm even, even in that area, I mean, doctors, of course, they can't do assisted suicide legally for this population anywhere in America. Um, but I feel as though I'm not wanting to be judgmental. So when I was at the University of Chicago, I had two psychiatrist mentors. Both of them had probable Alzheimer's disease. One of them had a wonderful family. He wanted to continue on with life and see if he could make emotional adjustments. He thought there could be some quality of life for him, even with deep forgetfulness. And he spent about 12 or 13 years living in Hyde Park. And he's, you know, there were a few years where he was in a nursing home, but his family came to visit him and he was capable of surprising moments of insight. Just, you know, that's what he wanted to do. But I knew another psychiatrist who um, had no family and he simply did not want to go through this uh, process. And so he took 40 secanols and put a plastic bag over his head. And uh, did I blame him? No, I, I, I never judged him. I thought, I mean, if you go back to ancient uh, Greece, you know, and, uh, and Rome, the Stoic philosophers, they said, suicide's a very, very bad thing for younger people. It's almost contagious. And I don't like suicide as a solution to the challenges of living. But they also said, when you get to a certain point and you know what's coming in front of you, and you, you would prefer to go out with your, 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 your full self, that's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're talking about your second mentor, I wish that we lived in a country where he could have gone somewhere and done it in a different way, but still uh, they honor his wishes. And I think it's a very tricky conversation, um, as is how do you handle what came to mind when you're talking about this, like, what if you don't have a family and we're seeing that wealth gap just grow. And if you're in lower income, what really are your options for humane care when you're older and you have, you know, dementia or memory loss, what really are your options to me? That's very, like a very gloomy outlook when you think about it. You know, are there real options? And so I will say on behalf of Canada, you know, I spent a lot of time in Canada with the Alzheimer's community. Uh, they have good Samaritan organizations in every single province and they're funded by the Canadian government. 
Um, so everybody gets free long-term care. Everybody gets free hospice. They get free respite care. So somebody can come into the home and give a family caregiver, you know, an afternoon off to go to shopping or go to the movie or whatever it is. It makes a huge difference. Um, I mean, they also now in Quebec have the option of uh, assisted suicide. Um, but at least the option is real, you know? And so um, there's a choice to be made. One thing I, I worry about in the United States is that because we, 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 we give scraps and leftovers to these populations, you know, we do not do much for them. You have to spend down your family assets, including selling your house. Yes. The cost know. is yeah. outrageous. It and if ruined, it ruins, it ruins your spouse, it ruins your family. And, and what, you know, is this what we should be doing? Doesn't society have more of a role, but in America, unfortunately, you know, um, we haven't done enough. We'll do anything on earth to develop a drug, but none of the drugs seem to be terribly effective. And, and we'll gouge you in pricing. I mean, my brother's a type one diabetic. The fact that insulin, how many years has it been on the market? What it costs versus Canada or other places is insane. And it brings up this whole concept when you look at the medical community of dignity and empathy. And, you know, we talk about do no harm, but you're not providing the tools to be able to really allow us not to do harm. And, you know, with those with Alzheimer's or any dementia, a lot of the care taking like falls on close family and those who have a nine to five job or working multiple jobs to try to put food on the table for their families, let alone taking care of a family, another family member. What would you tell those caretakers who are feeling like they're running on empty a little bit? Well, oftentimes they do feel that way. And the depression levels for caregivers are a bit higher than for the general population. It doesn't have to be that way. It's not that way in the Netherlands. It's not that way in Switzerland. It's not that way in a lot of places on earth where they don't have a medical system that's really just based mostly on rescuing people from death. You know, you walk down the street in Chicago or Cleveland and you'll see the clinic and, and the glasses shining from the intensive care units. And you'll go into those units and you'll see numbers of people who are, who are just really have no, no business being there. Um, but we'll, do, we'll spend any amount of money uh, to impose technology and to rescue people from death. But we don't do much that helps with their long-term situation. And that's the problem that we have to confront. And this book is largely, I mean, it does say a lot about, about this. And, uh, it, you know, there's a certain sort of injustice in the way we distribute our, our assets, including our healthcare assets. We could be a little more like, um, like the Canadians. The Canadians, they do it right. And, you know, if, if you're working nine to five and your loved one is in an assisted living center, you can still stop by on the way home from work and engage in assisted oral feeding. I, I saw I got interested in this topic because my grandmother had probable Alzheimer's many years ago. And I did assisted oral feeding in a nursing home with her. She would sort of come to life when I got in there. I could see in her eyes that she, she got bright and even radiant. And she may not have called me by name, but she kind of knew who I was. And when I would, 
help her with feeding. It was ritualistic and it connected us. And there was a kind of a emotional presence. And then every once in a while, she would surprise me. And she said, wasn't that fun or something like that, you know? Um, and, 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 and so, you know, even putting, putting someone in the care of professionals 24 seven, eventually it becomes necessary because most people can't deal with it on their own after a certain point, but it doesn't mean you're abandoning anyone. It just means that you're relocating them and you can still be part of that life. The other thing is technology is amazing, but with that comes some downfall sometimes. And one of them is you can get genetically tested. And in the book, you talk about why it's not a good idea to get genetic testing. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, depends on what kind of genetic testing we're talking about. So there's a very rare form of Alzheimer's that's called early onset. Is that the kind that was in the movie Still Alice? Uh, no, no. She had she had normal age related. I I believe I, I have to check that. Okay. I, she may have had one of these presenilin genes. There are two. Yeah, she. I think she did. So she, so so there there are two genes that they're called autosomal dominant causative genes. If you have that gene, you are going to get this disease, and you'll probably again I say generally get it between say the ages of 40 and 45, could be 35 and 50. And it's particularly aggressive. Uh, It it has a lot of behavioral difficulties associated with it, but it's only about one to 2% of all the cases of Alzheimer's. Most of the cases are normal old age cases where people, you know, you hit 60, you know, couple of percentage of people have the illness and then it doubles every five years. Um, so maybe if you look at 80 year olds or 85 year olds, maybe 15% have probable Alzheimer's disease, but um, uh, that's not genetically caused. Now there is a susceptibility gene, which I don't want to bother you with called apolipoprotein E4. And that makes you a little more at risk, especially if you have two E4 genes, but it's not a sure thing. And you don't have any idea when you would be affected by it. It could be when you're 60, it could be when you're 110. And there's also nothing anybody can do to prevent the onset of the disease, despite your genetic situation. So the only, uh, for for the normal old age uh, disease, family history is just as good a you know, a, a guesstimate as, as the susceptibility gene testing. But for people who have family histories with autosomal dominant presenilin 1, presenilin 2 disease, they can get genetically tested in, a, in any uh, uh, human genetics clinic. You can do that in Chicago. You can do that in Cleveland. You can do it in California. And there was one woman in Chicago uh, who had a hard time when she was an adolescent because her dad uh, came down with early onset Alzheimer's and she saw her mother caring and she did some caring herself and her father died a very difficult death. So she could have had the test, but she didn't want it, even though it was available because she thought, you know, why do I need to know that? 
But then she got pregnant and she wanted to know if that child she was bearing um, carried the gene. Because if it did, that child would have to see its mother go through the same ordeal that her father had gone through. And so she had the gene test um, and the, um, the, the test was positive and she had a selective abortion. And all the, all the radio programs in America were up in arms about this. How can you do that? I actually, I'm not, a, a, you know, I, I'm not taking a position on, on abortion, but I supported her because I thought, look, you know, she has her narrative. She has her story and she doesn't want to bring this child into the world. That's her choice. Also, at the end of the day, like everyone who's a critic isn't going to be there having to take care of her, having to take care of her daughter. I froze my eggs a few years ago. And with that came a lot of genetic testing that gets done. And I myself learned that I'm a carrier for fragile X. It never came up in my family. We had no clue. But because, you know, when you go through that process, you get so many different genetic tests. I would have never known that. And I do think there is some power and knowledge Mm -hmm. in understanding it, but it also allows me to make that choice of when I do decide to have children, is that something to consider of, okay, you have to genetically test for certain different Mm -hmm. chromosome defects, because I look at it as, and everyone's free to their opinion. I'm not looking to be canceled in this conversation, but um, life's hard enough with everything going on. And so if you are able to, if you know, or you witness people and especially her as a child, I'm guessing that was obviously Mm -hmm. caused a lot of trauma. She made the best choice for her and what her life would look like moving forward. I, I, I thought so too at the time, although the critics were, they, they said, how can you possibly want to fine tune the life and the lifespan of your child? If, 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 if that child does in fact have, have this gene, which, which the child did, you know, it'll live probably 40, 40 good years and maybe we'll be a Nobel prize laureate and maybe they'll come up with a cure. But why would you want that over your head growing up every day, knowing that when people are like, I get to live till 80 or 90 and you're like, "Mm, maybe 40 before my brain kind of goes. And also if she herself had the gene, I'm going to have to leave my child at some point and not be able to take care of them. That's not fair to the child either. So I understand. And I would encourage all listeners to read your book because it's, it's tricky. There's not an easy, there's not a right path at all. But I think that whenever you are approaching someone um, to approach them with way more empathy and kindness than we currently give. And that's really honestly what I got out of reading not only this book, but all your books is really you take such a careful approach and such a kind approach that you don't see anymore as much. Well, I hope that's the case. You know? Yeah, no, it comes through. Um, speaking of the book, can we talk about the cover? Cause it's beautiful. Who designed oh, it or where did it come from? Well, I told you, so I had nothing to do with that cover. The Johns Hopkins press that so kindly published this book, they had an artist and the artist just came up with that. And they asked me what my response was. I'm curious what you think, but I said, you know, it's 
it's a little bit like the continuing identity underneath this breakdown in communication, underneath this uh, disease, there's still a discernible human being, fully human and fully worthy of our respect, a little bit faded. So hence, you know, the, the petals, uh, it looks like there's some brown and a little bit of fall coloration. Um, I'll, I'll post this on our Instagram for listeners. But when I see it, I think of some days you might not remember, but then there are the days where you will remember. And those are the flowers that are in bloom and blue and all of that. So even though there might be days where brown, the white, it's just not there, but the days that people do come through and their memory comes back for a little, those are the beautiful days that we should cherish more than looking at empty blank arrangement. Hey, Mallory, that's the best interpretation I've heard. Oh, <laughs> I love it. I really, I, it's, I, I haven't heard that before. Yeah, and, that's and what I that's, think of. It's so wonderful to, to get your thoughts on this. Oh, well, thank you. Um, what, one last question before we kind of end it. What do you want people to get out of this book? I want them to come closer to deeply forgetful people and realize that they're not a scourge. Uh, they're not a threat. They're differently abled. We can notice the meaning behind certain kinds of activities like Jim with his twig, you know, uh, I, I, I mean, there's so many examples of the of that in the book. You know, a, a guy named Cliff who worked in the in the steel mills in Cleveland, dressed country and western, and no one could quite figure out why he clutched his cowboy hat even to the end. You know, even when he took a shower, you know, they they he would typically have that with the head to dry it out later. But um, it was because he still knew that somehow who he was was connected with that symbol. And, and so you've got you've to look for the meaning in actions uh, that might seem otherwise meaningless. And you've got to recognize that the dignity of these individuals is perfectly intact. They will have surprising episodes of paradoxical lucidity. And, um, and so we have to become better observers and be willing to bridge the gap Yes. Yes to everything. I would encourage anyone to read this book, whether or not you are affected firsthand by caring or knowing someone with Alzheimer's. As we all grow, we all go through different medical or just life issues and approaching it from so much more of an empathetic stance is so important. Steven, you've always, you've already answered the final three questions. So I had to come up with like a new one for you. And so this is going to be the question moving forward. Whenever I have a guest on for the second time, what do you want your legacy to be? Or how do you want to be remembered? Well, that's a, that's a very deep question. Um, of course, I'm my wife's husband for 40 years and the, and the dad of two adult children. And I try every day to still be a good father and a good husband in any way I can. Uh, so I believe in loyalty and sticking with folks, even when they don't seem to be headed in the right direction. You know? um, but I've also been uh, really fortunate, uh, you know, from early in life to have a sense of synchronicity, a sense that our lives are more cherished than we know that there is a kind of 
original love in the universe. And, um, and sometimes things happen that are so uncanny that they seem to be set up. And I've had my share of uh, spiritual moments um, when I was really surprised that things happened the way they did. And so I am um, confident that our lives have a lot of meaning, even though we all lose the music sometimes and, and we, we have periods that are less than thrilling. But in the end, you know, uh, I find the human journey to be very meaningful. I find the universe itself to be filled with wisdom and, and kindness. And, I, um, and I'm grateful for life. So that's pretty much me. I, you know, I, I run an institute for the study of unlimited love, you know, started in 21 years ago, never thought it would come to anything, but just had a big conference at Oxford at Linacre College with the greatest philosophers and theologians and scientists, physicists, quantum theorists in the world, talking about whether ultimate reality is unlimited love. I think that's a perfect way to end this episode. As always, it's a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope that we get to do this again soon. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much for being such a wonderful hostess and moderator, and uh, you're so thoughtful, and and I feel like the future is in very good hands. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 